coming into a retreat like this. I think it's not unusual for us to bring some hope or wish or possibly even some expectation that what we will be entering into is a clear, direct and linear movement. Engaging in spiritual practice will take us, we hope, we imagine, we pray sometimes, will take us from the chaos, the confusion, the pain, the struggle and the conflict of our lives to a place of clarity, peace, ease and delight. And it's a rather attractive thing to imagine or to hope for, perhaps something understandable that we might wish for or imagine would be what we are undertaking when we enter the spiritual journey or when we undertake a retreat. But, of course, for any of us who've done this at all before, and even for those who haven't, it doesn't take long to catch on that actually it's not quite like that. That what we are engaged in is a process which does not move us from where we do not wish to be to somewhere we wish to be. In a necessarily predictable or fast or at all reliable manner. In fact, it may be, at at times it seems like quite the opposite. Engaging in spiritual practice can bring us into contact with places and with experience that are anything but where we had hoped or expected to end up. Rather than some linear progression or development that we can map or track and give ourselves a little pat on the back for having got to first base by day three or second base by day four or whatever we might have imagined, what we actually encounter is a a process in which we go through cycles, which we go through rhythms of rise and fall of what we could call peaks and troughs, of times when things seem to be easier or opening or clarifying for us, and times when they seem to be becoming dense or obstructed or obscured. And it's important to be able to move with whatever the condition is that's revealing itself be- without making a conclusion about how we're doing or whether we're getting somewhere, or using our experience to in any way judge what is happening. There's a story that I heard about uh, one of the senior teachers in the uh, lay insight meditation tradition, Jack Cornfield, who's uh, based in California. And Jack was uh, quite a number of years ago now teaching a retreat in um, Southern California, 
quite a extended retreat. And after a few days of practicing um, with the group there, as uh, you have been practicing these days, he came into the kitchen and one of the staff members there who had a friend on the retreat asked him about his friend. He said, how's my friend doing? And Jack's response was, he's doing very well. The staff member was happy to hear and asked about someone else he knew. Jack's response was, he's doing very well also. A third, sorry, another staff member overhearing the conversation asked about their friend. Well, she's doing very well. And the first staff member said, Jack, what do you mean by doing very well? Jack smiled and he said, they're still here. (laughs) So if you're wondering how you were doing, you could take that as a useful uh, hint, perhaps. Because this practice that we're engaged in cannot be measured by what happens. Its value, its benefit, its transformative power is not defined by what happens in our experience. But it offers us the opportunity to recognize and transform how we meet what happens, how we engage with and respond to the experience that arises and that keeps arising. There's something about life that's unstoppable. Have you noticed that it just keeps happening? And so long as we're here, that's what happens. Life keeps unfolding. And sometimes it seems like it's really in our face. Like there's nowhere to escape. And and being here, we are asked to engage with that reality directly and to look and see what's happening. In some ways, as I reflect on this, my sense is, hmm, I'm sure we'll have said this already and probably actually we'll say it all again as well. And uh, what's important is to see that we need to keep learning fundamental lessons again and again it seems it's not that we can just hear it and know it so what is it that we're doing I find it kind of useful sometimes to reflect on how we relate to the fact that life is difficult or challenging as being really very much an expression of something quite sort of instinctive, quite uncivilized. Well, not uncivilized, the wrong word. It's like it's not really developed from the nature of the animal world, which isn't to be critical of it, but to see. I find it really useful to reflect on how my own responses and responses I hear of others are very much coming out of something quite primal in our makeup that we share with Virtually all beings, virtually all creatures, certainly creatures that have bodies, seem to do this. And what we tend to do is when something impacts us or impinges us that we find difficult or challenging, we respond in one of two ways. We either tend to sort of push away at it or engage with it in an aggressive or fighting kind of way, 
Or we tend to shrink away from it, pull away from it, try and disappear or avoid it in a fearful or kind of hiding sort of way. And these basic responses, which in psychology are described as fight or flight, when we're threatened, it's something we've kind of... It's got a long history. It's actually worked quite well in a certain way in that we've made it here. And not just us personally, but the species and mammals in general and beings at all have on many occasions benefited from the ability to defend themselves against something threatening by either fighting or by withdrawing. And yet, what happens is that we get locked into these responses because they're, they're, con- they're unconscious and they're habitual for us. And we tend to get locked into the not just the responses, but the effects they have upon us. So, so to notice, to see how when there's something that's difficult or threatening that arises in your experience... How do you respond to it? To notice what it's like. How often there can be a sense of contracting, of, of tightening. And, and that sense of pulling away. It's like as if we almost deaden ourselves to the experience by trying to pull away from it. And in the animal world, there's a very... Uh, interesting creature, uh, the American opossum, which I think is different than the Australian opossum, which I've, because I've never seen it do this particular thing. But the American opossum, when threatened, if it's unable to escape and run away, it pretends it's dead. It's like it's called playing possum. I don't know if you've heard that expression. It's like pretending you're dead. Because most of the things that eat possums won't eat dead meat. They want live meat. So it's quite a good strategy. Because if it looks dead, then suddenly the wolf isn't interested in it. Of course, if it's lying there pretending to be dead and whatever thinks it looks quite tasty, then there's really, um, you know, it's a bit limited as a strategy, (laughs) I could say. But that image of what it is to kind of sort of almost pretend to die in the face of a threat, it's something that... I can recognize in the way that we kind of withdraw, I withdraw my energy from a place of pain. It's like we take the life out of something that's difficult in order to somehow feel safe. And we do this ourselves, physically and psychically, in the way we react to painful experiences. sense of shrinking, sense of contracting, of tightening. And we, we notice this as tightness or as numbness or as a sense of a deadening or loss of contact with our body or with parts of our experience, our emotional life. And it's actually quite painful to encounter this. And of course the other way that we react, which again is very much found in the, the animal kingdom, is we, we kind of try and push something away. We try and scare something away or we, we grapple with it. And it's kind of interesting when we're threatened by something. I don't know if you're familiar with the sort of sensation in the back of the neck where it sort of prickles and tickles when we're scared or we're feeling threatened. 
I mean, I assume you know, this isn't supposed to be a biology lesson. I assume you know what's going on, but it's kind of interesting to reflect on it. If you see a cat that's been in a fight or afraid, it's all puffed up because its fur is all standing on end. And actually it looks about twice as big as the cat that's inside the fur. So it's less likely to get attacked. And when we feel fear and our neck tingles, we're attempting to get bigger. Our body is attempting to puff up, to get bigger, to scare off an impending threat. Physically, that happens. We sometimes sort of try... and Of course, we're not very good at it. We need a bit more fur, probably. But what happens inside when we're threatened and we move into that psychological response of anger, what tends to happen is it creates a very sense a sense of, of largeness, of powerfulness that somehow makes us feel safer and that we can use to push away or to scare off something that seems threatening. And as I said, these responses may have had their place and their value and maybe still do on occasion. But what tends to happen is we get locked into them. There's a, a fish in New Zealand that uh, demonstrates this rather well. It's, um, it's called a puffer fish. I don't know if it's found in other countries, but it's an interesting fish. It's kind of flat and it has um, fin, not fin, scales that are really pointy on the end. And when it blows itself up, it's got, little, it's got these pointy um, scales, but it, it becomes about twice the size. And it does it by sucking a whole lot of water into a bladder and it goes, there's a little fish swimming along. A predator comes and goes, <laughs> and it's a lot bigger. The problem is that if it doesn't scare the predator off, it can't swim very well when it's full of this. <laughs> and so again, it's somewhat paralysed by its defence strategy. <laughs> It's like this for us. It's like we get into reactions and we get somehow caught in them. And even if they're not actually helpful, we can't seem to put them down and find another strategy or another response. And it's, it's like we get wired up for being in a certain way, doing it like this. And you may notice your own tendency. Many of us will notice we have a default, which is either in the withdrawal or the push away when something is threatening and whether it be something outside or something arising in our inner experience the way we often do the pushing away is by becoming judgmental of ourselves or of our experience when we think it's not okay or when one way we withdraw is we feel diminished or we kind of shrink and feel like we're somehow shamed by our experience and it's like psychically or psychologically we're replicating that tendency. And it's really painful and not particularly effective. So we have the opportunity to look at what goes on inside us, to see what serves. Because really this is a pragmatic teaching, a very practical practice. I guess that's why it's called a practice. Because it's about what works, not about some idea of what should be or what might be. And so what works? What really works? There's a sort of a story or an account, apparently, uh, a transcript 
that I'd like to read you because I think it has something useful to offer on this. And I, some of you may have heard this before because I like to often share this. Anyway, it's an actual transcript of a radio conversation between a US naval ship with the Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. And uh, it's released by the Chief of Naval Operations in, on the 10th of October 1995. It starts with a communication from the American ship. And it says, Please divert your course 15 degrees the north to avoid a collision. There's a response from the Canadians. It says, Recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans, you can recognize this. This is probably something that's happened in your life somewhere. Americans, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. And you get the sense of it sort of puffing up. <laughs> the Canadians, no, I say again, you divert your course. And the Americans, this is in capital letters, so I guess that means it's shouting or something. It says, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic (laughs) Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's 15 degrees north. Or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of the ship. Canadians, this is a lighthouse. (laughs) Your call. (laughs) Sometimes we find ourselves gearing up to do battle with the way things are because we somehow feel that the way things are are in my way and they should get out of my way and it's like we want to do battle with them but things are the way they are and can no more be different than they are than the lighthouse can get out of the way of the ship it's really obvious in the case of a ship and a lighthouse But so long as you think what's out there is another ship, we get into the argument. (coughs) And part of what Dharma practice asks us to take on, whether or not it's a ship or a lighthouse out there, is that at some level we can't avoid confronting the challenging, the difficult, and the unsettling elements of life. We can't clear them out of our path. We have to find a way to engage them that actually serves, that actually works. Because clearly trying to plough through them is going to lead to a collision. (coughs) So we can look at, we can begin to check in what's been, check in with what's been going on. What's actually been happening in our experience because most of it unless we've been spending a lot of time working really hard to pay attention most of it's been going on outside the light of our conscious attention in the the half light and the the darkness of unconscious reactivity and habit and what we see is that there's this reaction this attempt to 
block out experience that goes on for us. That's so common when we feel it's too tender or too sensitive or just too much, too overwhelming. We, we try and harden ourselves to it. Like the words from the Simon and Garfunkel song, I am a rock and a rock feels no pain. That sense of choosing, choosing it seems at some level, to become insensitive, desensitized. Why do we do that? We are incredibly sensitive beings. We feel things deeply. Our physical bodies, our hearts, are so easily touched with discomfort or distressing experience. And it seems like when we're young and when we're not really having ac- when we don't have ac- not really it's like we don't have access to the fullness of our adult capacity and the maturing of our human consciousness we have it seems no choice but to close down in the face of that which seems too much or overwhelming and we do that to try and protect ourselves but we get locked into the habit of doing it And get stuck in that place where we've closed down. Becoming numb to life. Because we can't disconnect or withdraw selectively. We'd like to just not feel the things that hurt. But of course it's not like that. When we close down we lose contact. Not just with that which hurts or is painful or threatening or scary. We begin to lose contact with that which is actually nourishing and precious and uplifting and delightful to our heart. And we feel that loss deeply and keenly as, as, as grievous to her. And yet we don't necessarily understand how it's happened or what we have to do. Because that painfulness, that <coughs> sense of not being in contact with the richness and the vitality and the aliveness that perhaps we knew or remember or just intuit as possible for us. That, if we see that and we also pull away from that, we become even further removed. If we won't let ourselves feel what is there. (coughs) So, this is often how we can encounter ourselves. Or aspects. Not that it's completely or absolutely like this. But that ways and parts of our being express this. And what happens when we come on a retreat, when we start practicing meditation, is that the process that we're engaging in, paying attention, not just escaping from experience, but actually contacting it, it begins to soften, it begins to actually dissolve and and strip down or strip out that hardening, that armoring, that distancing that we've created as a protection for ourselves by inhabiting our experience by coming into contact with it even those places and those moments where really we don't want to be there where something in us is saying no and yet gently, consciously caringly allowing ourselves to be as close as we can without 
being overwhelmed, knowing there's a place for saying enough and backing off. But just as we do that, there's a there's a moistening, there's a softening. It's like it's the the lubrication of our life starts to flow again by the willingness to touch, to feel, to sense. And rather than escaping our experience, escaping our life, we are invited to go to enter more deeply, more wholeheartedly into it. Which at times means entering into experiences that are scary, that are unfamiliar, that are threatening. And yet that often are not as scary or threatening or overwhelming as we think or imagine from a distance. Because the very distance itself that we keep from those difficult experiences has the effect of amplifying the difficulty amplifying the scariness. It's like if you start to run away from something that's frightening, often the fear increases. When we pull away, it amplifies the threatening element. When we actually stay steady, stay present with, and Chitendri was speaking of this last night, we can often notice that begin to soften and change. And we have to do this. In the end, we have no choice. Because that hardness, that armoring, that defensiveness that we create to try and protect ourselves becomes a prison. And tragically, it becomes a prison in which we are enclosed with our pain. We're not enclosed in the absence of our pain. We're enclosed with our pain. And so, what we need to do is be willing be open and vulnerable in a way that maybe we haven't ever done before. Some years ago I was teaching a retreat in um, Insight Meditation Society on the east coast of America and uh, I was going for a walk down near one of the ponds they have um, in the middle of summer and there was sort of luxurious or sort of thick sort of grass and shrubs and bush growing around the path. And as I was walking down there, I spied a few feet in front of me a large snake. And I stopped dead still. I come from a country in New Zealand where they have no snakes. And it was like, I know that my heart's like, it's a big snake, it's a big snake. And then I just, okay, breathe out. There's a lot of stories in the Buddhist teachings about ropes and snakes and the problems involved with confusing the two. Now, this isn't one of those stories, but um, it, all those stories popped into my mind as I was looking at the snake. Is it a snake? Is it a rope? No, that's definitely a snake. But it's not moving. So I thought, plucking up a little courage, okay, let's go a little closer, because I was, as well as scared, I was dead curious. Took a step closer, and now that's still not moving. Got closer, and actually... Once I got to just, you know, a yard or two away, what I realised, because it was a little bit shadowy around its body, was that it wasn't a rope, but nor was it a snake. It was a snake's skin on the path. And it was substantial, like that big. 
looked at it and thought, wow. Apart from, um, <laughs> I thought, wow, that snake had to get out of its skin. And, you know, we all know that snakes shed their skin, but I was just feeling, what's that about? What's that like? Why does a snake get out of That's its protection, that's its safety. And again, not to overemphasize the biology lesson, I suspect you all know this, but what really touched me was the sense of, oh, that snake has to shed its skin. Because it's, it's rigid, it's fixed, that's why it's protective, it's hard, but it can't stretch. And actually, a snake, as I'm sure you know, has to shed its skin in order to grow, or it will die. And I imagine, I don't know this, but I imagine when it comes out of that skin, it's got to come out kind of pink and juicy because there's no point coming out with another hard skin on. It's not going to be any bigger than the last one. You've got to come out with something soft and stretchy. But you've also got to be vulnerable to do that. If a hawk comes past in that moment, you know, you're in trouble. So there's a way in which here we're sometimes being invited to shed some of the skins that we've built up, the armouring that is actually limiting because it cannot stretch, it cannot grow. And this really happens when we start to see that the pain of the limitation that is imposed by that defence structure is greater than the pain it's protecting us from or trying to protect us from. When that happens, it's like there's a sense of, okay, I'll do this. Not great, I'm going to get really vulnerable and be pink and juicy and have to worry about the hawks, you know. Fortunately, here pretty much everyone's kind of friendly and gentle and, you know, we've all taken the precepts just in case we're not friendly and gentle um, for one moment or two. So it's pretty safe to allow yourself to be vulnerable. To allow yourself to go to those places that you might not otherwise. And in doing that, we can actually start to find another way to be, another way to respond to this reality that is at times so challenging, so painful, so difficult to experience. This core element that we've pointed to of dukkha, of suffering, of the tender, painful aspect of life. It can often be that we're really hard on ourselves. It can often be that we tend to blame ourselves for the way our experience has turned out. That we tend to blame others as well. As though somehow because of what we've done or because of what they've done, we had to experience pain. Now, it's true that sometimes our actions have caused pain. And it's true that sometimes other people's have caused pain. And there's an appropriate place for learning about what is skillful in our own action. And there's an appropriate place for
for taking care to protect ourselves from what is unskillful in other people's actions. It's important to be really clear about that. And Dharma teachings are not saying we somehow become passive in the face of that which is harmful or threatening to us. But at the same time, we need to understand that pain and difficult experience, although the particular way we experience it or the form it comes to us in is determined by particular actions on our part or those of another or circumstances. But although that is so, it is not possible to live a life, to experience being alive without experiencing the painful and the difficult. And so in some way, it is not caused by the actions of oneself or another. It's inherent in the nature of the experience of being alive. And we need to really take that on. This experience is not an aberration or an error or a mistake, nor is it being done to us because we've done something wrong and we're being punished and that we somehow deserve pain. Not at all. It's quite appropriate, natural and right to wish for freedom from pain and suffering out of compassion for ourselves and for others. And yet acknowledging that this body, this heart, this mind are subject to conditions that are painful, that are difficult. And to give attention to that experience. Sometimes it's so hard to get out of our head and our thinking minds because the experience of feeling what we have in our body is too uncomfortable initially. It's like there are so many ways and places in which we're holding, we're contracted, we're tight. And what tends to happen is until we've found in ourselves the space to accommodate that, we tend to flee from it into the mind. We've taken away most of the external escape routes, but that one is still here. And yet, as we see ourselves doing it more and more, we recognize that it's not satisfactory. The mind into which we've fleed, if that's the word, um, I'm not quite sure. Mm-hmm. Flown? Thank you. The mind into which we've flown. Fled. Fled. Okay, fled. Good, thank you. (laughs) The mind into which we've fled is actually, because of the way we've entered it, also a really uncomfortable place to be. So giving attention to our body, giving attention to this, is like it's a rebalancing process. And to understand that as we do it, that there's a place and a meaning for that which is painful. Pain can arise for many reasons, just taking the physical, let alone the psychological, emotional. But in terms of just simple physical pain, 
You know, it can be sickness, it can be injury, there can be the process of aging, there can be just the fact that we have a body. We sometimes think, you know, my knees hurt because I have to sit here in this funny position and they won't let me move. My back hurts because I can't stretch it. And that may be true in a certain way, but actually bodies hurt. It's interesting to note that no matter how comfortable a chair you find, you can pay a lot of money for a comfortable chair. If you actually try and sit in it without moving, it won't take that long before something becomes uncomfortable. Even if you get the most expensive mattress and lie on it, it's as comfortable as it gets. If you do not move, eventually it becomes uncomfortable. The Buddha once said, with regard to this, he said, the pain of the body is disguised by the posture. What he meant by that was that we avoid ourselves seeing the painful element of bodily experience by constantly changing our posture. As long as we keep moving, we don't have to confront it. Well, for maybe the first two or three decades anyway. But if we stop still, at some point, and it doesn't matter whether it happens after two minutes or whether you've got to sit there for 20, 40, 60, 80, at some point, we start to feel the discomfort of the body. And this is part of how it is to have a body. And we've talked about our reactions to pain, about opening to pain, about being with it, about making space for and relaxing with discomfort. And also about being able to say that's enough and make a change to our posture. But there's more to pain than just pain, interestingly enough. Pain has the effect of opening us up as we allow ourselves to feel it. It's like a, a fire that burns away the dross, the dead stuff in our heart, when we allow ourselves to feel it. Khalil Gibran in The Prophet wrote, he said, Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. Just as the stone of a fruit must break in order that its heart may stand in the sun, so too must you know pain. And if you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracle of your life, your pain would seem not less wondrous than your joy. And you would accept the seasons of your heart as you have always accepted the seasons that pass over your land. And you would watch with serenity through the winter of your grief. I find these words remarkably poignant and powerful. To see that there is a, a process in which we by which and through which we are opened. 
And when we understand the place of that difficult element in experience, it makes sense. It's a bit like we imagine, or if we don't understand this, it's like imagining winter was going to last forever. But it doesn't. We know that. So we get by. We get through winter. And, of course, summer, we might have a different season we prefer, but lots of people like summer. And yet summer cannot be forever, that luxurious, you know, bright, sunny condition fades out into autumn, dies back into winter. And yet from the very harshness, the aridity or the coldness of winter comes the new growth of spring. The cycle follows our fields and our land. It goes through this, these seasons, and we understand that this is how it must be. Our life, our hearts go through the same. To understand that the times of uplift and joy and new growth at times have to fade out. And yet in those places of harshness or challenge, new potential is slowly ripening. Even though in winter you may not have any sense that deep in the soil the bulbs are building their shoots to break forth with delicate flowers. You can't see it going on. But one can come to know that this is what happens and trust the process. And in trusting it, open our hearts to the winter of our life, those hard places, those harsh places that we encounter. Pain is also very interesting in that, you know, much as we don't like it, it's really good for getting your attention. If you ever have a problem with dullness or boredom, just generate a little bit of pain and you'll find it goes away. Now, I'm not suggesting you need to do this. Mostly there's plenty going on and actually one doesn't need to generate it. But it's interesting to see how when pain arises, the attention tends to go there. Very quickly, very naturally. We don't have to say, hmm, I think I'll notice that sensation. Oh, it's a little subtle. Hmm. Hard, to, hard to sense it. No, no, it's boom. Tension is there. Knee throbbing. Or whatever. It's like it's speaking to us something. And it actually has meaning. When I was travelling in Asia... I had the really the good fortune and privilege to spend some time working in a street clinic in Calcutta run by an Australian doctor, Dr. Jack, and he was he'd set up a facility for providing basically not just first aid, but actually some quite advanced medical treatment um, for street people who had no resources and no access to it. And uh, amongst other things, we were um, dispensing medicine and uh, also treating the the significant numbers of lepers who lived on the streets of Calcutta, incredibly poor. And uh, it seemed to blighted people in certain ways, though also incredible brightness in some of their eyes. But one thing I learned about leprosy that shocked me, which is very relevant to this reflection, is that actually lepers, leprosy doesn't cause 
you to lose parts of your body in the way that I had always imagined it did, because that's you know the whole leprosy thing. Actually, what leprosy does is it kills the nerves. And people who are poor and uneducated and don't really know about disease and infection, if they cut themselves or they burn themselves, they don't feel it. They can't treat. They don't treat it. It gets infected, and then they lose that tissue, that finger, that lip, that whatever. If they could feel the pain that was happening in their body when they that was going on, they could get it treated. And the thing, this is what struck me, the thing that would most transform the life of a leper would be to feel pain. It's like pain is saying really clearly, pay attention here. That's what it's saying. Pay attention here. It's a clear, unambiguous message. If we can listen to that and actually pay attention, allow ourselves to open to the experience... It's remarkable what it can offer us. I can remember in one of my early retreats feeling like my body was consumed with the fiery pain of my knees and just feeling able to stay with it. Just feeling able to stay with it. There was something that just shifted in the nature of my body as I experienced it after that, which I can't really describe actually or quantify particularly but something changed through being willing just to sit with and it's not that pain then doesn't come back but it's almost like there's that that rigidity in the system that believes I cannot be here with this I cannot do this it's gone not that I would choose it given half a chance no way uh, let me avoid pain yes please but if one has no choice one knows this is possible for me. Because there's times, you know, if there's a flame, I'm not saying you just experience pain for the sake of it, but if there's a flame burning under your hand, of course, move your hand. It makes total sense. But if you have to reach your hand through a flame to take someone else's and pull them out, or to take your own hand and pull yourself out of somewhere where you've got lost, Sometimes it takes that ability to just be with the pain and stay open. And to stay present. Because with pain, mostly what we're reacting to is not the pain. It's the fear that is linked to it. And this some of you have actually referred to, spoken about sense of seeing the fear around the pain and how that is actually really difficult. More so than the pain itself. Often. The fear. I mean, how much of our life have we spent trying to avoid things that we fear will cause us pain? Probably an immense amount of time and energy. Each of us, certainly I have, expended trying to avoid things we imagine or believe or maybe know accurately will cause pain. When we can actually stay in the present with it and not be relating to our imagination that it's somehow going to become continuous, most scary or difficult things 
are, most, are challenging in our imagination of their continuity. Because if it's happening right now, actually I can already be with it because I'm here, it's here. It hasn't annihilated me. It's the thought that this will go on forever that is impossible to deal with. We can't deal with that which is in the future because it doesn't exist. And so we get lost in trying to grapple with it. Being present to know that fear is happening right now. It tells a story about the future. It pulls us out of where we are into a future scenario based on a projection of something that we've known in the past into the future. And when that happens, we're lost if we don't realize it. But if we realize that actually it's happening right now, fear is an experience happening right now. This is always true. And it can be felt right here. The scenario we're afraid of, we can't do much about. Often. And sometimes we can, and if we can, why not? Of course, then take some, do something about it. But often we can't. Because it may never happen. And yet being with the experience, letting ourselves feel it, we actually come back into connection with life. And to see we don't have to live in the fear of the future. Wendell Berry, the uh, American ecologist and poet, writes, um, or one of his poems, When despair for the world comes upon me, and I awake at night at the slightest sound in fear of what my life and what my children's lives will be, I go down to where the great heron feeds, where the woodrake rests in his beauty on the water. I come into the presence of still water and feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their minds with forethought of grief. For a while I rest in the grace of the world and am free. The peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. We don't need to add that to what's already here. By learning to be present and meet what is here, that we can deal with. When we feel like we can't deal with it because we're projecting it into the future where we can't deal with it, it's true, we so easily then become overwhelmed. And in that overwhelm, it feels helpless, it feels hopeless, and we often then also react with anger. We harden, that fear turns into a hardening of anger, where we blame me, or you, or someone else, or the world, or life, or whatever, or God, or the Buddha, something, someone. And under that anger, of course, is an immense pain or sadness or grief, so often, at the way things are. An unwillingness to accept that this is how life is. That's not all there is to life, by any means, but some of life includes this. 
And although my story is unique and your story is unique, each of us has our particular configuration of how it was and how it is and how it will be for you or for me. The overall theme of it is universal. We may encounter fear, isolation, grief, loneliness, rage, anger, despair, sorrow, pressure, anxiety, frustration. All these things, these are human experiences. And we all encounter them. The Buddha spoke again and again of this. He spoke of what is what impacts our body, birth, aging, sickness and death. Each of our bodies goes through these. He spoke of what impacts our hearts, pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation and despair. He spoke of what afflicts our minds. He said, being associated with that which we do not like. Being separated from that which we do like or love. Not getting what we want. This afflicts us, these things. And when one hears this, it's a bit like, hmm, that would make a good advertisement for meditation, wouldn't it? Come along, experience sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation and despair and not getting what you want. It's like, we don't put that on the brochure. And yet we could because it's true. Because this is our life. However, if we see that it's not about you or about me, if we see that it's universal, as someone was commenting in the group today, seeing that this is shared, this reality, when we feel like it's because I've done it wrong, I've got it messed up or it's been done to me and I deserve it because I'm bad or I don't deserve it and it's not fair... And it, it has a sense of isolating us. And it's in that isolation and disconnection that the deeper suffering happens. When we recognize it, that it's shared. That it's something we all encounter. That it's part of everyone's journey. Then, interestingly, it's just as painful. And yet, it connects us. It doesn't cause suffering in the same way. And that connection gives us, excuse me, that connection, that connectedness actually gives us the resource to meet it, to hold it. It's the sense of isolation that makes us feel like we cannot. And that harks back to what it is to be a very small child or baby who when first impinged upon, that's how impingement is actually the beginning of a sense of being separate and isolated in the baby's consciousness. And it's associated with total vulnerability and helplessness because a baby is. So some of that is what we encounter when we encounter the difficult experience in our hearts, in our bodies, in our minds. And we're asked to actually meet it, to see this grief, this anger, this alienation, this rage, this isolation, this fear. Whatever it is that we encounter, that you or that I meet, that this is the material 
that we have to open to. To ask yourself, what does it feel like? Where do I feel it? Is it hot? Is it hard? Is it tight? Is it sharp? Is it soft? Is it cool? Is it moving? Is it still? Get to know it physically. Get to know it as a tangible sensory experience. Because that's where you can meet it. That's where it's immediate. That's where it's present. And in getting to know it in that way, just to see that this practice is to meet, not to manipulate the experience. If in any way you're trying to fix it or change it by being with it, it it's just a subtle form of aversion. As Ramdas said, you can't be with it in order for it to go away. Because it knows. And it does, of course. It's same as us, isn't it? We know. So what is that quality of caring? And courage and willingness to actually open, to allow our heart. Because it's this is the condition of our heart we're talking about. That deeply sensitive dimension of our being that is touched by life and that responds to life. I'm not talking about the physical heart here, although that region can be associated with that pro- with this process. That sense of being touched and responding. Seeing how we can get caught in the reactions of fighting or shrinking away. Or we can stay in a place of of caring, of openness, of of bringing kindness to bear upon this experience. As we do that, we give it the space to move. Because all experience is by nature fluid. We talk about this in many different ways. All experience is by nature fluid. Changing. And it's only when we resist it that it gets stuck, effectively, or gets solidified by the energy that we have to keep putting in to resist it. It still isn't actually solid, but it's like it's like if a river's flowing against something and it, something else keeps pushing it back, it doesn't go anywhere. It just builds up the pressure and builds up the pressure. And so actually just allowing it to be felt gives it the space to move. And it moves, it changes. And what this process reveals of openness and openness is actually an expression of what is more deeply true. Openness is an expression of the nature of, we could say, what we are. And that openness, by the very nature of openness, is unbounded, is undefined, is not limited. When we sense that the experience of suffering and of difficulty is not just about me or about you, 
It's about something larger. We actually open into the container in which it's happening, which is life. Which is conscious, tender and caring and alive. And opening into that, we see that this has the capacity to hold. Not hold in terms of grasping, but hold in terms of cradling or embracing. This has that capacity. We don't have to do it. We have to allow ourselves to be open to that. That openness that is there. That benevolent caring. That at the same time understands that the experience of the difficult is something that helps us wake up. And what we wake up to is the vastness which contains not just the sorrow, has space not just for the tenderness, but equally for the joy of life, equally for the beauty of life. As we shed our defensiveness, we allow ourselves again to be touched by the deeply nourishing and sweet nature of life. And from the place of being so touched in that way, we would not wish to disconnect from it, even though life may continue to bring, at times, great struggles and challenges. So can we have a few moments quietly together? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.